Good morning, everyone. Good to have you here. I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, I've had a good day so far. I don't know if anybody else has, but I know it's early. I know there's still time left. It could all go bad, right? But so far, so good. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're talking about what we're talking about. Um, So a lot of you know that we have three foster kids, and uh, my wife earlier this week went out and bought each of them a Bible, you know, kind of age-appropriate Bible, pictures, things like that. And uh, the three-year-old uh, was really excited, and he was, you know, trying to understand what this is. And so my wife said, well, this is the story of Jesus, which is what the Bible is. This is the story of Jesus. It all kind of points to Jesus. Uh, so I didn't know about any of this. I, I come home from work, and uh, our three-year-old foster kid comes running up to the door to me, and he's like, he's just screaming at me, I got Jesus, I got Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what you're talking about, but I approve. That is wonderful. <laughs> I'm sure I'm in on that. I, you know, I think that's a good sentiment, you know. And if 22, like, he'll walk around the house when he can't find his Bible, and he'll say, where's my Jesus? <laughs> like, buddy, it's just, he's, there, he's everywhere. <laughs> he's, he's there, I promise. Um, but what we're talking about in this series has been this idea of pursuing Jesus. Like, like where's my Jesus? I got Jesus. And I think that that's a wonderful kind of mental image to have as we explore this idea so it's no, hopefully no surprise to those of you that have been with us that the, the series we're talking about is called Develop Disciples, and we believe that is the end game. That's what it's all about. There's no other goal. There's nothing else we need to be concerned with, and it all kind of funnels into this idea of developing disciples. That's what church is all about. And when we add too much stuff to it, we get all distracted, and church becomes something that it wasn't intended to be. It's all about developing disciples, developing people who are going to pursue after Jesus, developing people who are going to be excited, and they're going to greet one another with, I got Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been trying to kind of articulate a vision of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we've talked about uh, four or five different things, or, or three different things. We're talking about the fourth today. But this is, this is a, uh, a reformation of our mission. I guess they would have said about 500 years ago, a reformation of our mission. It's about like making sure that we are focused on what we need to be focused on. That we're not goofing around as a church. Like, there's Jesus and we're after him. That's what it's all about. Everything else is just kind of like peripheral stuff that doesn't need to occupy too much of our time and attention. So we've been going through these five guideposts that point us in the direction of discipleship. We have them up here. Some of you. How many of you are still rocking the wristband and the bracelet? Anybody? All right, uh, uh, wonderful, about three people, fantastic, glad to hear that it's caught on so well. I still got it on, but it's all about like remembering, reminding ourselves of what it means to pursue Jesus, what that looks like. Uh, and so we've walked through this week by week, uh, talking about what this means, what this looks like. And understand, and I've said this before, it's not a checklist. These are not things you get done with. These are things you continue to do and you will continue to do till you take your last breath. That's what this is about. That's what life is about. Hey, guess what, folks? Today we found the meaning of life, and this is it. This is it. There's nothing else. I don't know what you've been searching for. I don't know what your midlife crisis have been about, but this is it. This is where we are. It's about pursuing Jesus and this mission of discipleship for ourselves and then bringing other people along with that. That's what it's all about. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got an opportunity to speak at a youth retreat back in, uh, back in Iowa where we had lived for about six years working at a church for, for about six years. Um, and 
it was, it was pretty interesting, because after one of the lessons on, uh, on Saturday, a 12-year-old kid came up to me, and we were having this conversation about what it meant to influence the world, you know, and here's this 12-year-old kid kind of thinking about this idea, what does it mean to, to influence the people around him, thinking in terms of how he has an effect on the people around him. But what made this, this particular interaction wasn't just his age, but it was who this kid was. And this is, this is not, I don't know, maybe this is one of those things that's an observation and has meaning to me and won't to anybody else, but, but this was very powerful to me because of who this kid was. Uh, before we had, uh, before the, he was even born, his parents were the first two people that we had had any sort of impact on, uh, as a, that I had had any sort of impact, impact on as a minister. So his parents were the first two people we had baptized. And it was just like a surreal experience to sit here talking about spiritual things with their child who wasn't even alive at the time, who I had not met before. I mean, I had seen him in passing when we had visited, but I, and here I am having a spiritual conversation with this 12-year-old, and I had been able to have this, like, just this little bit of influence on his parents. It was, a, it was this weird experience to, to kind of wrap my mind around. The first thought I had was, wow, I'm old, because here's this kid that's 12 years old, and, and I'm like, like, that's weird to me to think about. But the second thing, it's, it's a weirdly humbling experience to feel like you have affected the trajectory of someone's life, that you've made some small impact. It doesn't, not necessarily a huge thing, but that you've had some conversation or some interaction or some engagement in their life that is kind of like you, their life was going in this direction, and because of something that God did through you, let's not take away the credit from, from whom it deserve, who, who it's deserved, but Something that God did in you that redirected the trajectory of their lives, and they're still faithful uh, in their walk with God, and they're raising their kids in this relationship with God. And it was just this weird kind of overwhelming experience. It was almost heavy, like, man, that, so, so here's one instance, like, th- this, should, this should be happening more often in my life. God should be using me to a greater degree than I probably am allowing him to use me. And I know some people are going to think, well, yeah, it works for you, Patrick. You're up on stage. You, of course, you're supposed to have influence. We, we pay you to have spiritual influence in people's lives. But don't misunderstand. The concept of discipleship is that God calls every one of us to have that sort of relationship with people that changes the trajectory of their lives. That's heavy. Because then we're thinking like, man, I've got a lot of missed opportunities in my past. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the club. We do. That's heavy. Our fourth guidepost that we've been talking about in this series is this, this concept, that disciples share their faith by sharing their lives. Disciples share their faith by sharing their lives. Evangelism, which is a perfectly good old school church word, has a little bit of negative baggage. If you've grown up in the church, evangelism to you might make you recall images of going around neighborhoods, knocking on people's doors, strangers' doors, trying to get them to come to church. Uh, Anybody in the room ever done that? Knocked on a stranger's door, tried to invite them to the church? That's so much fun, isn't it? Like, if you are a huge fan of rejection, that is a great way to get a ton of rejection in a small amount of time. Because people love it, right? How do you react when somebody comes to your door? If you're like some people in the room that are not, I'm not going to name names, like my wife, you hide. 
Like, you see somebody coming from the door. This is true. They go into full stealth mode. If I'm not there to, like, run interference, my wife is like, seriously, kids, do not make a peep. Do not move. Do not let them see anything near the door. They're peeking in. Don't let them see you. Everybody lie on the floor. Duck and cover. She knows it. That's, That's how it is. I mean, it doesn't matter. They could be, like, you know, Boy Scouts, like, I don't know, raising money for something. It doesn't matter, Right? And so imagine you're a stranger coming to the door and you're like, hey, can I talk to you about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? People don't want that. Now, I'm not saying that that hasn't been effective because there may be people in the room who came to a relationship with Jesus through some sort of door knocking campaign. Totally can happen. But that's what evangelism brings to mind is that sort of thing. And I want to like, offer a suggestion. Like, rather than using the term evangelism, which is a good church word, it's fine, but maybe it's got these, this baggage that we can't really unload. Instead of using that term, let's talk about spiritual influence. Because I think a lot of us are like, I'm not going door knocking. I'm not even going to do anything that looks like door knocking. A couple years ago, Jordan, our uh, other minister who does leads outreach and involvement, organized this thing that wasn't door knocking, but it involved going to people's houses and people so associated it with door knocking that were like, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. We're not, we're not door knocking. They're like, nope, not going to do it. So rather than thinking about evangelism, I want you to think about this in terms of spiritual influence. What is the role you can play in spiritually influencing someone else, somebody else uh, in your life? What is the role that you can play? This is not talking about just single interactions with relative strangers. We're talking about something that's a little bit more holistic. And this is what I want to offer. This is one of the thoughts that I want to offer us this morning. It's this. Spiritual influence looks less like having the perfect answer and, and really, you could take answer out of the equation and put it a blank. Spiritual influence looks less like having the perfect interaction, the perfect argument, the perfect reason, the perfect whatever. Spiritual influence looks less like having that and more like just sharing your life. Now, some people are going to hear that and they're going to hear cop out, and we're going to deal with that in just a second. They're going to hear like, just sharing your life. What, I just got to walk around being a nice person and people are supposed to fling themselves at me asking questions about Jesus? Probably not, but hopefully that would be great if it happened, right? But spiritual influence, I think, looks less like having the perfect interaction, the perfect answer, and more like sharing your life. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at a little story uh, in the life of Christ that I think will uh, be a little enlightening with regard to what we're talking about. Luke chapter 5. says this. After this, what had just happened is Jesus just healed a paralyzed man and he got up and took his mat and walked and regular Tuesday for Jesus. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. All right, that's pretty clear discipleship. Let's follow Jesus. Jesus is there. We follow him. Pretty cut and dry, pretty straightforward. Verse 28. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Left his job, like quit his job. No two weeks notice, just bam, quit his job, follows Jesus. Then immediately held a huge party, a great banquet. Uh, The Greek wording for great is mega, mega banquet. This is a huge party for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others, and we're going to talk about that others here in a second, were eating with them. Now, this story is pretty, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It feels like this is something that happened in Jesus' life quite a bit. Now, social norms are being violated here, if you know anything about first century, first century Israel, and, and we'll talk about that in just a second, too. But I, want, I just want to point out something, that, and this, I think, is significant. Jesus, Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of his time hanging out with people, often at parties, 
by the way, Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time hanging out with people. Now, hospitality was definitely a feature of first century culture. I mean, that, they, they had hospitality nailed in a way that we just don't even understand. Hospitality for us is like nodding at somebody as we pass them in a hallway. That's like as good as it gets. They had hospitality, man. If you didn't get like 10 invitations for lunch after church every Sunday, they were, people were doing something wrong. Hospitality was just built into their DNA. But even at that, Jesus kind of took things to another level. Because even in that type of culture, people looked at Jesus and said, what he's doing is something far above and beyond what everybody else is doing. And he took heat for it. He took heat for how much he partied with people. He took heat for how much he hung out with people. And I, we know this, right? I mean, we know this. If you look in Luke chapter 7, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is reiterating a criticism that he's heard from people. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He took heat for it. Because of the people he was willing to hang out with. And we've heard all this before, right? We know, we know these stories. We know that Jesus sat around with, with to eating with tax collectors and sinners. But even for a culture that valued hospitality, Jesus was up to something. There's something here. And I don't think it's, I think we'd be remiss just to kind of gloss over it and say, yeah, Jesus liked to hang out with people. Because first of all, we don't do that much anyway, Right? But it's, it, there's something that Jesus is doing, because I don't think this is just something that he did. Jesus liked to party, so he hung out with people. I think this was a feature of his ministry. Like, he was being intentional about what he was doing, about the invitations that he would accept. And in some cases, if you know the story of Zacchaeus, in situations he would just invite himself over to people's houses. Imagine we did that in our society. I'm coming over for dinner. I hope you have something good. Jesus would do that. That's pretty amazing. And it's a feature of his ministry. And if you stop and you count up all the stories where it says Jesus was dining at someone's house or hanging out at a party, it's exactly a lot of instances. I didn't count them, but it's a lot. A lot in the Bible. I want you to see the response to Jesus' criticism here. He says, here is a glutton and a drunkard. That's the accusation. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. But he says this in verse 35, but wisdom, this is interesting because this was a phrase common to the language, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. And what he was saying is the effectiveness of these choices that I'm making are going to become evident. The value of what I'm doing is going to be clear. The wisdom of what I'm doing is going to be clear here soon. Wisdom is proved right by her children. I'm going to be vindicated because of these choices. If any of you have ever been in the market for a house, you've, you come across all the descriptions uh, for a house, right? When the realtor says it's cozy, they mean it's tiny, right? Uh, when they say it's got a lot of potential, they mean it's a dump and you should run for the hills. Um, but one of the features that you see a lot in descriptions, and it's very popular, is an open floor plan, right? Just this open floor plan. We all want an open floor plan. Uh, if, if there's one thing that we could remove in my house right now, it's this weird kind of half wall between our kitchen and our living room. That doesn't make any sense. You can talk to each other, but you can't see each other. And we just get rid of that wall. Plus, it'd be nice to be able to throw dirty dishes into the sink from the couch. That would be handy too. But it'd be nice to have an open floor plan. Like, that's what we're looking for. You see pictures and you're like, yeah, op- I just like no walls. And it seems like in a certain generation of houses, they just put walls everywhere. They were like, here's a nice open room. Let's build a wall here just to block it off for no apparent reason. I don't know if the feature of the, the, the day was, hey, more corners. The more corners, the better. I don't know what it was, but it was like there's walls everywhere in certain houses. When we want an open floor plan, that's, that would be great. That would be fantastic. It's all the rage. It's so much more pe- appealing. It feels good. 
I think our lives can be a little bit like those old houses with walls everywhere. Just, hey, here's a spot. I'm going to wall this off, and, and we're going we're, we're gonna to leave this for something else. And I think what we do is we have a work life, and then we have a big wall, and then we have a social life, and a big wall, and then a church life, and a big wall. Have you ever had church friends and work friends get together? It's awkward, right? Because we've walled those things off. Um, we have a kid's soccer club wall, and then we have something else, and we have our, you know, Boy Scouts wall, or a workout group wall, or whatever it is. We've got all these different little groups of people in our lives, and then we've got all these walls in between them. And I think what Jesus is doing in his life is he's blowing those walls out. He's doing some remodeling, and he's, he's building this open floor plan kind of life, and inviting everybody into every part of his life. Like his disciples lived with him, followed him everywhere. They followed him everywhere. There wasn't like, hey, here's some time for, I mean, occasionally he'd get up early, but that's what he had to do. He would try to escape people in boats, and they would still follow him, and he would have compassion on them anyway. But Jesus had an open floor plan kind of life where people were invited into it. And this is the reason we do not see ourselves having the same sort of spiritual influence on people is because we have walled people off from so many parts of our lives. We give them just a little bit, and then we're saying, now the rest is for me. I got some Netflix to watch. I got some things to do that I don't want you around for. And I think what Jesus is doing in his life, he just blew out the walls. And he said, everybody's invited into every part of it. And I'm going to hang out with people. I'm going to spend my time with people. And often, do you know what Jesus did? He was like, hey, I need a little downtime. I need a little me time. And you know what he would do? I need a little me time. And he would say, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Jesus' me time involved other people. Did you know that? Our me time is like me, you know, bubble bath. I don't, I don't take bubble baths. <laughs> I don't want to give you any images. <laughs> whatever it is, right? You know, whatever your like me time concept is. I should think before I speak, shouldn't I? <laughs> Jesus invited other people into his downtime, into his alone time. When he really wanted to be alone with God, he had to wake up before everybody else so that he didn't spend any waking normal moments alone and by himself. Now, some of you are going to point out, but what about when he was tempted? What about this? But understand, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' goal of spiritually influencing other people around him, he spent his time with people. There was really no walls. There was really no backing off. This one family, the 12-year-old boy that I was talking about that I talked to, um, the first family that we had had any sort of spiritual influence on, and I didn't recognize this at the time for what it was, and I, I just didn't know better, and we just didn't have our lives structured in a way that, that kept people at an arm's length at this point in our life. We, we didn't have children, and so we ended up spending tons of time with this family, tons of time. And I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, hey, how can I be a spiritual influence? It was just like, here's some people who need Jesus, and let's hang out. Let's Let's stay up late talking. Let's play cards together. Let's help each other, like, fix stuff around the house. He helped, he helped me remodel my house. I was just talking to him recently. Remember when we did this? That was a ridiculous amount of work. Why did we do that, you know? But we spent tons and tons and tons of time together. And that time, that investment of that time, led to that spiritual influence. 
And it's, it's no wonder we don't have spiritual influence on people because we want to give it to them in, in little fortune cookie bites. Like, here's a sentence there, here's a sentence here. We want, when, we, when our kids are messing up, we want to sit them down and have a lecture, but, but to spend time with them. Do you know the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, hey, you want to spiritually influence your kids? You talk about God. You talk about God's expectations when you're lying down, when you're waking up, when you're walking on the road, when you're doing life. I mean, we just did life together, and we didn't think about what was going on. We just did it. Uh, in one instance, uh, real quickly, I'll tell you this story. Um, they, uh, they thought they had run, this is, takes a lot of explanation. Let me just preface the story with saying their daughter was fine. But when their daughter was just about six months old, they thought they might have run her over with a car. And I know, how do, you, how do you accidentally think you ran your daughter over with a car? But the situation was, she was in a car seat. They were out doing some yard work, and they moved the car seat away from the lawnmower so there wouldn't be any uh, projectiles. And they moved it over near uh, the vehicle. And then just forgetting about it, they, moved the, they had to move the vehicle, and he couldn't get the vehicle to move. Like something was wrong with the brake, and he kept hitting the gas, and he kept like, pushing up on something, and realized they were driving up onto the car seat with the child in it. You can imagine just like... And the, ch- the, the child was fine, but they didn't know it. They immediately took her to the hospital. The hospital was like, we, we don't know. So they immediately put her in a life flight uh, and took her up to uh, a hospital a couple hours away. And we heard about this, and we immediately jumped in a car, and we went to the hospital. That's just what you do. It wasn't ministry. It was just life. It was just life together. And fortunately, she was fine, and she was also at the, at the youth retreat uh, la- a few weekends ago. But, I mean, that was just life. It's just the way life was, and you just do life together. So this is what I want. I want us to have a vision for what spiritual influence looks like, and it looks a lot less like having all the right answers and a lot more like sharing life because disciples share their faith by sharing their lives. That's the most effective way for us to share our faith with someone else is by sharing our lives, and that requires a little bit of sacrifice from you because I know we like to have certain parts of our lives walled off. Disciples share their faith by sharing their lives. <clears throat> sharing life doesn't diminish the need for boldly speaking the truth, and this is important. Uh, jump down to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 again. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, again by the name of Levi. You're like, hey, we just read this. But yeah, understand what's going on here. Sitting at his tax booth, follow me. By the way, little historical tidbit, this booth was set up to collect taxes, and they think it was probably like a tax from people that were using the Sea of Galilee. So it's very likely that Peter and the other disciples who were fishing had to go pay Levi taxes as they they finished like their haul for the day. It's very likely that they were like, like sworn enemies. And how interesting is it that Jesus was like, oh, I'll take some of you and I'll take your enemies over here and we're going to build a team. We're going to change the world. It's pretty interesting to think about. This is a little bit of background. But this is a, this is a house full of tax collectors. And it says um, the accusation that Jesus gets. Uh, go to the next slide if you would. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, a large crowd of tax collectors and others. This others is, is really interesting. Jump, jump forward. Maybe I didn't put the slide on there. Jump forward a couple for me. Um, nope, I don't have the slide up there. Take your Bibles then. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5, if you're not there already, and uh, verse 30. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. Oh, here we go. Luke chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 29. Or, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... Um, one more. There we go. Sorry, my bad. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, this is the Pharisee sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we, we read this. We know Jesus did this. But, but understand what he's saying. At. When he uses the phrase sinners, this is such an interesting phrase. Because this isn't just like, you know how we, we use sinners in kind of a self-deprecating way? Oh, we're all sinners. We all sin. We all do bad things. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We're all sinners. That's not what this word was. This word was like sinners who were like really good at it. These were like the flagrant sinners. These were sinners who had a lot of experience sinning. These were sinners who were so good at it, they were probably going to go pro kind of sinners. Like these were excellent sinners. They had shown proficiency at sinning. This wasn't just your average ordinary somebody making mistakes. These were people who knew what God wanted them to do and then did not do it. Just like the tax collectors who were very looked down on their society. So tax collectors and sinners. And he's at a party with them. And the Pharisees walk into this party. And you can imagine, imagine this setting. The Pharisees come walking in. It would have been like, you know, if the police show up at a, at a teenager's party where there's some shady stuff going on. The Pharisees come walking in. And I bet you the music went down right away. People stopped. Maybe some people ran. We don't want to see the Pharisees around here. Everything stops. Everybody's watching the Pharisees. The Pharisees come into this party and they're like, what's going on here? And they find the disciples. And you know, it's always interesting that they address the disciples and rarely address Jesus directly. But they find the disciples and they're like, what is the deal with your rabbi? He's eating with tax collectors and he's eating with sinners. Sinners. These are bad people. How in the world can he spend time hanging out with bad people? How is that possible? Now what Jesus does next is so fascinating to me. Because we're like, Jesus did this all the time. He always hung out with tax collectors and sinners. No big deal, right? No biggie. We don't do that, by the way. Or I guess we do just by default because we're all sinners. But we don't like seek out, like, I'm going to seek out some terrible people and spend some time with them. We don't do that very often. Jesus did. It's very interesting that he did. And, then, and they, they liked hanging out with him. But I want you to see something very interesting about what he does here. In verse 31, go to the... Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. Just imagine this scenario, right? Jesus is sitting there at the party, probably reclining, probably eating, probably drinking. You know, he made wine at parties before. Who knows what this party was like, right? I'm not trying to create a picture of Jesus that isn't accurate, but Jesus, he was at a party, a big party, a lot of noisy party. The neighbors were probably calling the cops. It was a party, right? And Jesus is sitting there. Pharisees come in. All right, everybody, let's turn the music down. What's going on here? Hey, uh, why does your rabbi, what's your rabbi, what's he doing? eating with tax collectors and sinners, doesn't he know that holiness is the most important value to God? That separating ourselves from these type of people is the most important thing to God? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, right? It's the sick. And think about this. As he's saying this, among a crowd of people with whom he's spending time, I have not come to call the righteous, but these terrible human beings, these flagrant sinners, these professional sinners. I've not come to call the righteous, but these sinners to repentance. Do you understand that he's calling them sinners while he's sitting with them, eating with them? Isn't that interesting? I couldn't do that. I couldn't pull that off. That is a tough relational maneuver to pull off, to insult someone in a way that expresses love at the same time. Love and acceptance. Now, this is a little, maybe, maybe it's a feature of, uh, of 
I don't know. Maybe this is a thing that guys do, kind of a phenomenon. But have you ever seen um, a couple guys interact? And it just, you know, how guys are. We just don't know how to deal with our emotions. So the way we communicate love and acceptance to one another is like insult each other. Have you ever seen that, right? We don't know how to say, I love you, man. And we don't want to say, I love you, man. So we're like, you're such a loser, right? But really, we mean, I love you, man, right? That kind of thing. That's, that's kind of what's going on there. Just a little insight. Uh, some guys are better at this than, than others. But you, you have to have a certain level of strength in a relationship to be able to pull off some, some kind of insults like that. Like, have you, <laughs> have you ever, and maybe this is just a feature of me being the type of personality that I am, but have you ever made a joke uh, that fell flat because the relational connection you had with that person wasn't strong enough to carry the weight of that insult, and you ended up just making somebody upset with you? <laughs> yeah. It's just me? Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but there's got to be a deep bond, I think, or a deep level of acceptance to sustain some of that kind of stuff. And I think what we see with Jesus is we see a level of acceptance where Jesus could sit and eat and dine with people who were so far from God. Sinners, listen, these are people who are actively doing the thing that God does not want them to do, and God in the flesh comes down and hangs out with these people. Does that not blow your mind? You would think Jesus would be standing on a street corner saying, get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you, and yet Jesus is eating with them, and this is amazing. He can communicate love to a degree that we just have not attained yet, and he looks at these people and is able, while he's eating with them, to call them sinners. That's pretty amazing. Listen, to have spiritual influence on someone does not diminish the need for speaking the truth. Sharing our lives doesn't mean we don't need to boldly proclaim truth to someone. But listen, it creates opportunities to do that. You don't have the opportunity to call out someone's sin when you don't have a relational connection with them. Nor do you have the influence. And I think a lot of us know that. We intuitively know that. And I hear people rightly all the time pointing out that you can't, you can't speak that sort of truth into someone's life without that, that relationship. But the problem is, for a lot of us, instead of building the relationship, we just stop sharing our faith. And that's the wrong conclusion to come to. I want to ask you a question. I, I, think, I think this is important for us to think about. Who are we? Or, or maybe I should be more grammatically correct. With whom... Are you sharing your life for the purpose of sharing your faith? With whom are you sharing your life? Who are you building relational connections with right now so that at some point in time you can share your faith? You can tell the truth. You can say, look, I don't think what you're doing is pleasing to God. Who, are you, who do you have that connection with that you're building that connection with? What I've discovered is that for most of us, well, we don't feel like we can speak truth, but we aren't building the relational connection either. We're just like avoiding the whole concept altogether, and we're creating walls in our lives, and we're avoiding that conversation at work. We're avoiding that conversation with our kids' soccer club. We're avoiding that conversation with our workout group. We're avoiding that conversation with, with whoever, whatever people. We're just not having that conversation. We're not trying to build the relationship. We're just not having the conversation. And I think we're missing an opportunity because disciples share their faith by sharing their lives. 
I would love, I would love to be able to alleviate any anxiety or awkwardness in a serious conversation about faith. I would love that. You could have a serious conversation about faith with someone who disagrees with you, and there would be no anxiety or awkwardness about it at all, right? I would also love to lose weight without diet and exercise. I would love to earn money without work. But guess what? We have a calling from God, and in part, our calling is to tell people that their their direction in life isn't right. Like, they are heading away from God, and we have an obligation by God to, to share that truth lovingly with people. But we're afraid to because we haven't built the relationship. So let's build the relationship, and then let's speak the truth. If you're anything like me, um, I, I think that I focus on the awkwardness in those conversations, but I think I need to focus on the joy of those potential conversations. What if somebody responds positively? What if somebody like, hey, uh, Patrick, thank you very much for sharing that truth. No, nobody's cared enough about me to share that truth before. That'd be great, right? It'd be a surprise, but that'd be great. What if it goes well? I know it could go badly, but what if it goes well? What if we think about that? What if we focus on that? It's a, just interacting with that 12-year-old a couple weekends ago was just an indescribable feeling, knowing that God had just used me to play a small part in, in, in changing the trajectory of somebody's life. Like, that was amazing. That was amazing to me. Credit, obviously, to God. But it was amazing to be able to feel like you were being used by God for that purpose. So I want us to focus on that, to think about that. Who can we spiritually influence? Who are we building relational connections with? If you're anything like me, what happens to you is you want to invite someone over, you want to build those relational connections, but you don't think about it when it's a good opportunity, right? And when it's not, you forget, right? You just, you're like, oh yeah, I want to have my neighbor over for dinner, and I've lived there 20 years and I never talked to him, so if I want to do this, I have to move and start over with new neighbors, because now at this point it would be awkward, right? No, like, I, I, just go to your neighbors and say, hey, we've lived across the street from each other for, for, for two decades, right? And, uh, I, I put this off too long. Hey, can't, you want to come over for dinner? Just do it. See what happens. Maybe they'll shut you down and they'll say, I don't want anything to do with you. That's fine. may happen. Maybe you'll create an opportunity to build a bridge to eventually have spiritual influence in their lives. I think the thing that we need the most is to be reminded of what we want, to re- be reminded that we want to share our faith by sharing our lives. So we've got a variety of ways to do this, and we're going to wrap up with this. Uh, we went out and we, pr- we printed hundreds of Post-it notes. Now, I know you can't read this from back there, but this Post-it note says, share your faith by sharing your life. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded of that fact. So maybe you need to take a Post-it note and you need to put it on the dashboard of your car so that when you pull into your driveway, you see your neighbor out there raking leaves, you can be like, share my faith by sharing your life you can grab your rake and you can go help your neighbor. Or maybe you need to put this on your monitor at work, and so when a coworker comes in, like, what's that post-it all about? You can be like, oh, hey, speaking of, you want to have lunch today, you know? I'm trying to do a better job of this. So we've printed hundreds of these, and we want you to take three or four. We want you to put them in your bathroom mirror. When you wake up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth and you're thinking about, what do I got to do with my day? I need to share my faith by sharing my life. So we, we've printed these. We want you to take some as you leave. There's some on the wall in the hallway. Uh, Jordan's going to hand them out. Take two or three, four or five. If you need 10, take 10. Take a whole stack. You can't write on them because we already wrote on them. Take as many as you want. If it's going to help you, remember to share your faith by sharing your life. I mean, we think that'll be a helpful reminder. But this is good too, and I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, Jordan told me this week, and we had talked about this previously. Jordan wants you 
to actually go out in your community and find volunteer opportunities so that you can be serving the community and interacting with people in order to share your faith at the same time. It's a twofer, right? So you can serve and you can share at the same time. And this is true. I'm not making this up. Don't think that I make this up to... Jordan said, if you do that, he will go with you if you need help that first time. So this is what I need you to do. I need you to fill Jordan's schedule up so full that he doesn't know whether he's coming or going. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Like Jordan's got stuff just, you know, 10 hours a day every day. Lindsay forgets who he is because he's so busy, right? Wouldn't that be fantastic? I want you to take Jordan up on that. I want you to say, you know what? I do want to have volunteer opportunities in my community. I've never really looked for one. Have Jordan help you. I'm not sure that I feel comfortable getting into a brand new situation. Jordan will go with you. He's super extroverted if you've interacted with him. He's really good in those situations like that. But it, it'll be awesome. So let's do that. Let's keep him busy. <laughs> He's busy. I'm joking. But let's get out there and let's share our faith by sharing our lives. Let's build those relational connections so that we can have that spiritual influence that we want to have in people's lives so that we can change the trajectory of their lives and we can point them toward Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful for being able to be here for just a little bit this morning and talking about this idea of what it means to be a disciple. Lord, I pray that we would not get so focused on our own lives that we would forget that you have called us to be a light in our communities, that, you'd, that we would forget that you've called us to love and serve and accept those around us to the point that we can have some spiritual influence, that we can speak truth. We know your spirit will help us. We know you will guide us. And so, God, we, we pray for that. We ask for that. Give us those opportunities. Help us remember what we have been put here uh, to do, what we've been put in these situations to do. And it's not just to live out our lives for our own ends, but it's to live out our lives for you and to influence people for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.